Good morning, church. It is such an honor to be with you all, and um, I'm excited. I, I said to Pastor Tara Beth that this is uh, almost like God in the church here because I'm speaking not only to you in this room, but those in the contemporary service and those at Butterfield and those at home that are still having Cheerios come down their face. So it's kind of like we're, we're, all, spe- we're all in one big place in this place. So I'm so honored. I want you all to know that I'm here with the single most ravishing piece of masculine flesh on planet Earth, uh, who is my husband. We've been married for 20 five years and I want to show you a photo of my family and I think we've got that photo ready to put up so um, it's my husband Nick and my 19 year old Catherine Bobby is over there on uh, I guess the left on that side and Sophia Joyce is 15. Catherine Bobby's about to go to college uh, next week. I fly from home from here and then we're going to take our uh, child to Pepperdine and so she'll be suffering for Jesus overlooking Malibu Beach for the next four years. And so we've been praying and fasting and believing God she will actually study at some point. As I was going around the campus, the president was saying, you know, this is where all the students gather and they have little cohorts as they overlook the ocean and study. And I thought, what is the statistical probability that there will be any study being done at all? But anyway, so I'm excited about that. And so I I, I love having two daughters. My husband is number 14 of 15 children. And and um, I know even here in the classic service, everyone just crossed their legs. I know that's, uh, it's, it, it's very challenging. Um, his mother, you know, as you could tell, there was no television in that part of Australia. And so there was not much else going on. I'm glad she didn't stop at 13. So number 14 is awesome. But I would take my two daughters because my mother-in-law did not think that you were a woman until you had like 10 children. So I would take my two children to my mother-in-law and I would say, uh, this is Catherine Bobby and she is my alpha and this is Sophia Joyce and this is the omega and this is the beginning and the end of my childbearing years. This is where it all happens. So uh, we are just so, so honored uh, to be here. I I thank God for Pastor Dan for the invitation and um, for Tara Beth, who is one of my dearest friends. I love her with a passion. And so she speaks so highly of you all and this church. And so I pray that today I will inspire you, even in the classic service, we're going to get pumped up and fired up. I have so enjoyed worship already. Nick and I, as you heard, we uh, oversee the A21 campaign, which is a global uh, anti-trafficking organization. When I was 40 years old, um, you know, when you're 40, I had just had my second child. When you, you pop out a kid at 40, you're not looking to start anything new. You want to get a purple heart and go and retire to Santorini and have a vacation. And so I was not looking to do anything new, but I was at Thessaloniki Airport about to speak at a women's conference in Thessaloniki, Greece. And uh, just to throw it in there, I am Greek. Greek is my first language. And um, if you've seen my Big Fat Greek wedding, then that is my Big Fat Greek life. That is exactly what my life is like. I'm not exaggerating. You're from Chicago, so you get Greeks. So we're passionate. So even here in the classic service, you'll just have to excuse me. I'm both Greek and a woman, so I only speak three ways, hard, fast, and continuously. So you will not fall asleep. I'll tell you that much this morning. But I was waiting to speak. Uh, I was waiting for my bags before I went to the conference to speak, and I saw all of these posters of these missing women and children. It was shocking to me because there were so many posters. And as I looked at them, I was looking at all of these names. And because I can read Greek, it just kept saying missing, missing, missing. And then I came across a little girl 
and her name was Sophia, and I just had my second child, and my, daughter's, my second daughter's name is Sophia. And I say that this is the moment, it was in 2007, that A21 really was birthed in my heart, because I went at that moment from looking at someone else's missing child to seeing my own daughter. And when you look, you can look away, but when you see, you can never unsee. And it was in that moment that something happened in my heart. I didn't know what to do. And I'll share a little bit about that down the track. And the Lord has been so faithful over those last years. We started officially in 2008. And here we are 13 years later by the grace of God. We have 19 officers in 16 countries. Thousands of women and children have been rescued. Hundreds of traffickers have gone to jail. And millions of people have been reached with a message that we can abolish slavery everywhere forever in our lifetime if we all wake up and do something about it. To God be the glory. I want you to know that God still does amazing things today. It is by the grace of God. With that, I want us to turn in our text today to the Gospel of Luke, one of my favorite passages of Scripture. And the Bible says right here, and you know, there's a, the corresponding story is in Matthew chapter 8. Um, and I'm going to refer to, to one verse from Matthew in a moment, but let's read from Luke chapter 7. The Bible says, after he had finished all of his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now, a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word. Even here in the classic service, I want you to say out loud, say the word. I know the contemporary service also did. You said it before I even started. That's why you're contemporary. Okay. But say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go and he goes and to another, come and he comes. And to my servant, do this and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. I love this, this text, Jesus in Luke chapter 6, had just finished preaching the Sermon on the Mount. He was coming back to his ministry headquarters in Capernaum, a, th a thriving economic village, a thriving fishing industry. It was strategically placed. It would be the place where Jesus would have his ministry headquarters. As he's coming back after preaching this profound Sermon on the Mount, he is met by all of these Jewish elders that are that are advocating on behalf of a Roman centurion. So we already know there's something strange going on in this text. You would not think that Jewish elders would be advocating on behalf of a Roman centurion. I mean, no one really liked the Roman centurions. They were the occupying force in Israel, obviously. And, and centurions were men that led over about 100 people. They were in authority over about 100 different soldiers. And they were placed strategically throughout the empire in villages in cities, in towns, to do two things, basically to keep the peace and to collect taxes. And I'm sure back then, just like today, that's, that's not 
you know, a way to win friends and influence people. It was, they were not the most loved people in the empire. And so the very fact that these elders are coming to Jesus on behalf of this centurion, we know there is something unusual about to happen. And here in the text, right at the beginning, we read that the Roman centurion had a servant in Matthew chapter 8, verse 5. We know that he was paralyzed and he was very, very sick. And the Roman centurion did not want him to die. He wanted him to be healed. This again is unusual because, of course, in these biblical times, slavery, unlike today, which is essentially illegal, even though it is the fastest growing crime worldwide and there are more slaves on the earth today than ever before, during this time, it was not unusual and it was legal. And the same word here for servant would be slave and they were considered to be disposable, dispensable. And no one would think that a Roman centurion would care if their servant was sick because we'll just replace him with somebody else. So we know that he was a very compassionate man in that he cared what happened to his servant. He wanted him healed from his paralysis. He wanted him to be healed. So he was compassionate. We also know he was generous because the Jewish elders are saying, this man built our synagogue. This man loves our nation. Now, it would not be often that you would expect someone of a different faith to build a house of worship for another faith. So there was something very unique about this man. He obviously, obviously was generous in that he built the synagogue. And not only that, he was obviously a humble man. Because when Jesus came to him, he said to Jesus, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy for you to come into my home. Just say the word. That's all you have to do. Now, in fact, he could have said, actually, I'm part of the occupying force here and you're just a, a rabbi, so you can do whatever I tell you to do. But he knew there was something different about Jesus. This morning, church, we are going to learn about faith from a Gentile, from a Roman centurion. We're going to learn about faith from someone that actually shouldn't have had faith in Jesus as the Messiah. He says that I'm not worthy for you to come. All I want you to do is say the word and my servant will be healed. And the Bible says that Jesus marveled. Jesus marveled. That word in the Greek, now remember I told you I'm Greek, so I know a little Greek. I'm little and I'm Greek. And so I know a little bit of Greek. That word marveled in the Greek is thavmazo. And you know, I, I remember growing up that I would hear my mother say this word whenever there was anything that was amazing. Or whenever there was awe or wonder, thavmazo, in the scripture, this word is used 43 times. But it's only ever used two times in relation to Jesus. There are only ever two times in the scripture that that word thavmazo, that Jesus marveled. Now, I'm amazed that there's even one, one time that Jesus marveled. Because how could the God of the universe marvel? The omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God of the universe who knows the beginning from the end and everything in between. How could he marvel at anything? But according to this text, there is a type of faith that is available that causes the God of the universe to marvel. The Bible says that Jesus marveled and said to everyone following him, I haven't seen this kind of faith anywhere. In all of Israel, the self-righteous religious leaders, they didn't have this kind of faith. This Roman Gentile, he has got a faith that causes Jesus to marvel. And when Jesus marvels, 
Jesus does amazing things like heal the servant. Now, I said there's only two times in Scripture that this word is used in relation to Jesus. The other time is in the book of Mark. So I want us to turn this morning to Mark chapter 6. Everyone say Mark. Mark. I don't know how it was in the contemporary service or at home between your Cheerios, but I just heard Mark. Butterfield, I know that you're saying it like an Australian. Mark. So I'm going to teach you all Australian. This is how the Queen wishes that she could speak English. Everyone say Mark. You sound so Aussie. That's awesome. Okay. I'm going to teach you how to say awesome like an Australian. So everyone say awesome. The classic service sounds fantastic. I hope the contemporary service is to say awesome. Okay, now say it like an American. You know, I'm just going to let you pause and think about that for a while. I'm just not going to say anything. I'm going to go back to the scripture. Mark chapter 6. The Bible says, He went away from there and came to his hometown. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hand? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Can you imagine going down in eternal holy writ as the people that took offense at Jesus? And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. I always smile when I read that in the scripture because we'd call that a really good Sunday. If we laid hands on a few sick people and healed them, we'd be thinking we had revival in church on Sunday. But the scripture says he could do no mighty work there because Jesus, of course, was capable of doing so much more. And here's the scripture. And he marveled at what? Because of their unbelief. He marveled because of their unbelief. Here's the two times Jesus marveled in the scripture. Both times he marveled when it came to faith. He marveled at the faith of the Gentile, the Roman centurion. And he marveled at the unbelief of the people who knew him best. The people that should have known who he was and what he could do. But familiarity with Jesus can breed a laziness in our faith. And it's often the people of God that have grown up around the things of God that are most familiar with the things of God that can practice the most unbelief. And the Bible says that Jesus could do no mighty work. That of course God is God. He could do whatever he wants to do. But you know what? When we get familiar with Jesus... When we get familiar with the things of God, it is amazing how we stop practicing faith and we just go through religious rituals. And I'm sure Jesus thinks, I could have done so much more. You know, there are hundreds of thousands of churches all across North America this morning meeting. Jesus is going to marvel today in one of two ways when our services end all across the nation and the world. Jesus is either going to marvel at our faith or our unbelief. He's either going to marvel at, I could have done so much more in services across the world today if my people actually believe that I 
am who I say I am and that I could do the things that I said I could do. I think so much of what is happening on the earth today. I mean, of course, we've got crises in every realm, political, economic and social and environmental and moral. There are so many different crises, but I think ultimately what we have is a faith crisis. We've got a lot of unbelieving believers. And if we had some believing believers, we could start to see things turn around. Our world desperately needs light. Our world desperately needs hope. Our world desperately needs mercy and grace. Our world desperately needs forgiveness. Our world desperately needs peace. And it's going to take the people of faith to actually believe that God is who he says he is. And that God can do what he says he could do. To see change and transformation in our world. Nothing quenches the work of God like unbelief. And I'm wondering why we're not seeing more of God's work across the earth and in our nation. And I wonder whether the people of God need to start to stir up the kind of faith that causes the God of the universe to marvel. The kind of faith that gets the attention of God. That says, I'm not just going through the motions today. I I really, truly believe, God, that you are who you say you are. You know, I was doing a meeting. My husband and I were in a certain region in Southeast Asia. And we spend most of our life, we, we've been doing 300 hotel nights around the year. We're more foreign missionaries than anything else. That's all we've done for our whole 25 years of marriage. Helping to plant churches around the world. Helping to rescue the lost and reach the lost. And obviously those that are in captivity. But that's what we do all over the earth. And we were at this particular meeting where they had 500 leaders of the underground church in China. And they, someone had sponsored them to come out for the four different major streams of the Chinese church and the 125 leaders from each stream. They had invited me to come over and speak because what had happened was the great revival, of course, in our lifetime, the greatest revival amongst the Christian church in our lifetime has been in the Chinese underground church. It's been in China. And they saw great moves of God and the Lord do amazing things. But they invited me because they said, Christine, with industrialization, with globalization, we have moved an urbanization um, from the villages to the cities. And the big revival swept initially throughout all of the villages with uneducated people, obviously, that, that were unable to read and write. And so they had to believe in the power of God for God to do amazing things. And he did. And they said, but Christine, we've had children and the children have grown up and they've had access to technology and all of the world. And now we all live in Shanghai and Beijing and all the major cities. And our children mock and ridicule our faith because <laughs> it's so simple and we never learned how to read and write. And so many of them are leaving the church because it's just not cool and they just have no longer really encountered God or his power or they don't have that kind of faith. So Christine, we never really learned anything about leadership and you seem to be able to reach the next generation. Would you come and teach us how to reach the next generation? Would you come and teach us some leadership principles to reach the next generation? And then they said this to me that so radically marked my life, church. They said, because Christine, we we really don't know anything about leadership. All we were ever taught was how to witness to our prison guard on the way to our execution. We, we never learned anything else. And I just paused and I said through my translator, I said, can you just ask if I heard that right? Christine, the greatest revival in, in modern church history in our lifetime amongst the Chinese church, and they're like 
please come and teach me to lead because I really don't know how to lead. I just know how to witness to my prison guard on the way to my execution, not if I go to prison, when I go to prison. I just remember weeping, getting on my knees. And I said, look, I don't know what I'm here for, but I'm obviously not here to teach you anything. Whatever that faith is that you have, the kind of faith that would want to witness to a prison guard on the way to your execution and to glorify the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I want that kind of faith in my life. I want you to lay hands on me so that I could carry that fire back to America. Oh, we've got a lot of leadership and we've got a lot of principles and we've got a lot of systems. But do we have faith? Do we have the kind of faith that would cause the God of the universe to marvel? See, it's amazing to me. We are so busy trying to impress each other in our Western nations that we are no longer amazing God. We are so busy scrolling through each other's lives, looking to try to be amazing. And Jesus is like, I'm I'm, I'm waiting for you to amaze me with your faith, to believe me. But we have these wonderfully publicly curated lives at the sacrifice of cultivating private intimacy with God. You see, the kind of faith power that I'm talking about doesn't come from a beautifully curated public profile. It comes from being on our knees in our prayer closet with God. That's where power comes from. That's where faith comes from. That's where the ability to believe God, in certainly in my lifetime, in the most divisive, chaotic, painful season that I've ever been on this earth. My little Instagram feed is not going to bring power. The prayer closet with God is where I'm going to get perspective, is where I'm going to get faith to navigate what's happening on the earth today, where I'm going to be able to believe that God is who he says he is. See, we're so busy building our public platforms that we are not building private faith in Jesus. We're so busy arguing with each other on our public platforms that we're not cultivating private faith with Jesus. And the power comes from faith. I want to remind you, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, we're a faith people church, remember, that we walk by faith. And not by sight. Romans 1.17 says the righteous will live by what? Faith. Galatians 2.20 says this, this life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. This is what we are. We are a faith people. That's what we are. That's what Christians are. Now the fact is that marvelous faith in the 21st century and in 2021, it doesn't actually impress people, but it amazes God. And I've come here to Christchurch Because I want to unapologetically stir up marvelous faith again. (laughs) The kind of faith that causes God to marvel. You know, in our world of unbelief and secularism and atheism and postmodernism and post-Christianism and relativism and rationalism and add your ism, whatever our ism is, it's actually not cool to have faith. Actually, people think that we're either bigoted or that we are, you know, in, in, we're irrelevant or that we are judgmental or that we are naive to have any kind of faith. As we were reciting in this service, I'm not sure if we do it in the contemporary, but in the classic services, we were reciting the Apostles' Creed that we all believe. I started to smile because I thought that's not really cool in the 21st century to just Believe the Apostles' Creed, that we believe in a triune God, that that we believe in a virgin birth. People think, are you cray-cray? 
did you miss your biology class? You know, I tell my daughters, 19 and 15, I said, I do believe there was one immaculate conception and one virgin birth. I never will believe there's another one. Don't come home and try this. I've told them many times. But people think that we're weird that we would believe this, that we believe that this is the actual word of God and we believe it from Genesis to Revelation. And what about, Christine, all of those, those difficult passages and the genocides and what about judges? And it, look, just because I might not like some things in it doesn't mean it's not true. But that's not a very popular stance. To actually believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. I just want you to know the linchpin of our Christian faith is that you and I this morning as we recited the Apostles' Creed, the linchpin of our faith is that we believe that a, a man 2,000 years ago died, none of us were there, and that he rose again from the dead and that he's going to come back again. People think that's cray-cray. How can you believe that? Especially in 2021 when we have so much empirical proof of so many other things. How can you believe that? Christine, it's impossible. I think I know it's impossible. But I don't need a God that can do the possible. I need a God that can do exceedingly abundantly above and beyond anything I could ever ask, hope, or think. So what am I trying to stir up this morning, church? I'm saying that even as followers of Jesus, what we believe as the base foundation of our faith, that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, it already is cray-cray. So why not embrace the whole thing? The same God that rose from the dead is still able to save and deliver and heal and restore and reconcile in this day and age, the same God, the same God. That's the kind of faith that we need in 2021. Now, if you want me to stop speaking before the second coming, I just remembered that they told me what time I started. I just cannot remember what time I was supposed to finish. And I know you all got nothing else going. Look, when the classic service is even not moving, we know that God is in the house. So I'm thinking 10, 20, I think I've got five minutes. Someone needs to just tell me. So at the end of the day, our challenge is, church, that our, our faith is predicated on trust and not understanding. There's so much confusion in our world and so many of us are so fearful, so anxious, so depressed. Why? Because we feel out of control. <laughs> Things are changing all the time, all the time. This week we've gone back to a, you know, wearing masks here in church. We don't know what's going to happen next week. And so when we're out of control, we try to control by overcompensating. And, and that's why the world is just full of such fear. So the Lord's asking us, the people of God, will you trust me even if you can't trace me? Because that's what Proverbs 3, 5 essentially means. Trust in the Lord with what? All your heart and lean not on your own understanding. There's so much we don't understand in the world today. There is so much pain. There is so much suffering. There is so much loss. There is so much grief. But will you and I, followers of Jesus, will we continue to trust God? Some of you go, well, Christine, it's easy for you to trust God. Look at your personality. You're obviously an eight on an Enneagram. We could tell as soon as you picked up that microphone. You're obviously, you, listen, faith is not a personality profile. Faith is not a personality type. Faith is a blood type. It's the blood of Jesus of Nazareth that set all of us free. All of us free. Whatever your Enneagram number is, whatever your love language is. And so, in fact, faith doesn't come naturally to me. 
I'm the girl that was left in a hospital unnamed and unwanted when I was born. I was sexually abused by four men for 12 years. That messes with you and that does not foster trust. But I had to learn to trust him, to understand that God is light and in him there is no darkness. That even though I had been abused, I had been abandoned, I had been rejected. And another time I'll tell you that story. That John writes, Chris, God is light. In him there is no darkness. He has no dark side. So even during a global pandemic, even during so much chaos and division and pain, Christine, will you understand that God has no dark side? He's light. I'm here to remind someone today, someone at home, someone at Butterfield, someone in the contemporary service, someone here in the classic service, God is light. And in him there is no darkness. And I know we are living in volatile times, but can you trust him even when you can't trace him? You know, trust not only doesn't come natural to me because of my background of abuse, but also because of my background of being Greek. Greeks are fatalists. It does not matter how bad things are. They can always get worse. My mother would always say to me, you know, Christina, that literally she would say, Christina, do not go snow skiing because you'll die. I mean, there was no possibility that you could enjoy it. You just would either ski or die. So when we moved to America, I finally felt I was safe enough distance away from my mother, 14 hours away. It was so good. You know, us Greeks, we get scared. And so I I could actually go skiing. So Nick and I went skiing with five American families. And it was during the Winter Olympics, so I felt a moral responsibility to represent Australia at at these ski. Now, the fact that I'd never skied was irrelevant. Um... I thought I'd surfed. I thought it was the same thing. Skiing, surfing, similar. It's not, in case you're wondering. And so I would watch the, I would watch the TV at night to see the Olympics. And then the next day, I'd get up on the chairlift and I'd go, I'm representing Australia. And so, you know, I wasn't able to do it. So all I could do was go on the green slopes. You know, the ones that the two-year-olds go on that just learn to ski, the flat green slopes. And Nick... And the boys, this one day, were going to go on this black double diamond, you know, suicide run. And they were going to go down this thing. And I said to Nick, honey, I want you to come with me. Skiing today, husband, wife, romantic, let's go on the green slopes. And Nick decided to come with me. And as we were skiing, I'm saying to him, babe, if you were with the guys today, you would not be having more fun than you are right now, would you? And you know, any man that's been married for more than 13 seconds would know that if your wife ever asked you a loaded question like that, the right answer always is that you would say, well, no, I wouldn't be happier anywhere else. Where I would want to be right now is here with you. There's nowhere else I'd rather be than on this flat green slope with you. And of course, if you wanted any action that night, that's exactly what you would say to your spouse. And so, you know, that's where it would go. But my husband, being a man of integrity, says to me, No, Chris, if I was with the guys now, I would be having much more, not just more, much more fun. Now, that's like putting a red rag in front of a bull. So I I point my skis downhill and I said to him, famous last words, I look over my shoulder and I said, well, babe, eat my snow. And with that, I started going downhill. I knew I was in trouble about 20 seconds later on my second somersault that was not planned. And on that second somersault, I heard the loudest pop, pop, pop uh, that you've ever heard. I snapped my ACL, tore my MCL, tore my meniscus, fractured my knee. I did it all. 
And I was lying down there. Nick had to get, you know, the ski patrol where they put you in that little coffin. You go down the mountain as they carry it. That was me. And, you know, I had to have surgery. I had a hamstring graft. My mother calls me. This is all to tell you about why faith and taking risks is not natural to me. My, My mother called me, Christina, I am so glad you had the accident because I told you, if you go skiing, you will have an accident. You will die. That's what I grew up in. I grew up in a nation that was, we call pull, pull down the tall poppy. We don't want anyone to excel, nobody to take risks, don't have too much faith. We would grow up in my home and in my nation with sayings, you finish it if you know what it is, like you can't have your cake and what goes up, don't count your chickens, keep both feet. Well, you all had a negative Greek mother as well. That's obvious in this classic service anyway. I'm not sure how we went at Butterfield. But, but can you see how everything in life is, don't get your hopes up. Don't, have, don't take too many risks. Just play it safe. Well, the fact of the matter is, church, what we are discovering, especially these last 18 months, it's been staring us in the faith. One thing we do know is that life is risky and life is terminal. George Bernard Shaw said, death is the ultimate statistic. One out of one will die. That's the issue is not whether we're going to die. We all are. The issue is, are we going to live the life that God put us on this earth to live? Are we going to fulfill our God-given purpose? Are we going to fulfill our God-given mission? I'm going to just finish with these final thoughts because I want you to know that what I believe in this hour is that we need the kind of radical faith that, that causes God to marvel, a marvelous faith. And there is a precedent from Genesis to Revelation to show that everyone in their generation that ever did anything significant for God did it during very trying times, like the times we're in today, chaotic times, like the times we're in today, divisive times, like the times that we're in today. They had a faith that caused the God of the universe to marvel. And I wonder if in North America right now, we could start to stir up some of that faith again, some of that believing God again. Can you imagine how foolish? I wonder how, how prepared you are to look a little bit strange to the people around you. Do you know how foolish Noah looked when he was building an ark? Can you imagine? Everyone's like, Noah, what are you building? An ark. What's an ark? I don't know. Why are you building it? Because rain's coming. What's rain? I haven't got a clue. So you're building, I don't know, for I haven't got a clue. Yes. I feel like that most days of my life. Imagine how Moses looked as he came out and He's got a million Egyptians, I mean, he's got a million uh, Israelites behind him. He's got the Egyptian army behind him. And he's got a Red Sea. And everyone's like, Moses, what are we going to do? I don't know. I've got a stick. Some of us, that's how we feel right now. I don't know. I need God to part this sea. Imagine how Sarah felt. She's in Walmart in the maternity section. And everyone's like, what are you doing, Sarah? I'm having a baby. They're like, Sarah, your eggs have dried up. But anyway, it's like, this is impossible. Some of you feel like that. You think your time is over. The Israelites looked foolish marching around Jericho. David looked foolish with a nine-foot giant in front of him. Esther looked foolish going to the king to speak truth to power. Caleb looked foolish at 85 when he said to Joshua, I'm not cashing in my 401k. I am not going to retire. I've still got Hebron ahead of me. Some of us, I'm 55 this year. It's like I've still got life ahead of me. Mary looked foolish coming to Joseph saying it was an angel. I promise. The wise men looked foolish following a star. Peter looked foolish stepping out of a boat. The centurion looked foolish saying, 
just say the word. The woman with the issue of blood looked foolish touching the hem of his garment. Paul and Silas looked foolish in chains, worshipping. The little boy looked foolish with five loaves and two fish and probably up to 20,000 people on the mountainside to be fed. And let's just say, Jesus Christ certainly looks foolish to people as he hung naked on a cross. And they said, that's your king, that's your Messiah. Many people in 2021 are saying that to us as followers of Jesus. That, that's who you worship? That, that's the God you worship? Can I just say throughout history and throughout scripture, it's always taken a people of marvelous faith to see mountains moved because they said yes and they were willing to look foolish in their generation. Look what happened, church. Noah and his family were saved from the flood. Moses did see the Red Sea part. Sarah did give birth to Isaac. The Israelites saw the walls of Jericho come down. David did defeat Goliath. And Esther stopped a Jewish genocide. Caleb did get Hebron. Mary did give birth to Jesus. The centurion's servant was healed. The wise men found the Messiah. The woman with the issue of blood was healed. Paul and Silas got out of that prison. That little boy's lunch, it fed everyone on that mountain. And Jesus Christ got off that cross. He defeated hell. He defeated death. He holds the keys to hell and death. And what have I come to church to tell us this morning? I want to remind us saints, the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives on the inside of you and lives on the inside of me. Therefore, church, we can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens us. Amen and amen in Jesus' name. Amen.